Hello, and welcome back to Powerplay. On Powerplay, we bring you stories about the power of music, the music of the powerful, music as a means to power, and what happens when music and power go head to head. I'm Carbo. And I'm Ross. Let's take it from the top. The music you just heard may be familiar to some of our listeners. That was Theme One, the tune written by Beatles producer George Martin for BBC Radio One. It was used on BBC Radio One through the mid-70s, and was the first music ever played on the station when it launched in 1967. And the story of that launch is where we'll be starting today. You see, BBC Radio One was actually born out of controversy in the United Kingdom, Radio had long been a government monopoly in the UK, and after World War II, the government, fearing the propaganda power of radio, passed the Wireless Telegraphy Act of 1949, which cemented the British Broadcasting Corporation's role as the purveyor of British radio. And the BBC wasn't horrible, but imagine in the United States if we only had NPR. Even when they do play music, it doesn't exactly meet everyone's tastes. Yeah, and in the 60s, this became an issue because the BBC largely refused to play pop music such as rock and roll, meaning that the younger generation had to turn to international radio they could pick up from the rest of Europe. So seeing a gap for the kind of commercial radio that had existed in the United States for decades... Corporate interests began funding offshore broadcasts of new music from ships into the UK. These pirate radio stations, as they came to be called, caused quite a splash. Riding at anchor off Harwich and safely outside the three-mile limit, the innocent-looking ex-ferryboat Caroline is causing quite a stir in official circles. She's a floating broadcasting station, hoping to make a big thing out of commercial radio and waiting for the advertisements to roll in. I'm no pirate, insists Captain Mackay, even if the radio crew are. No danger to his ship so far. Beginning in the early 60s, pirate radio ships would sail off the coast of the UK in international waters, broadcasting pop music onto the mainland. They grew in popularity until the government finally took decisive action. The government acted with both a carrot and a stick. This will become a theme in today's episode. In 1967, the government reformed the BBC to include a new station specifically devoted to play pop music. Although accompanied with the stick of new laws criminalizing offshore broadcasting, BBC Radio 1 launched to meet the needs of rock and roll fans across the country. After George Martin's Theme 1, Tony Blackburn, himself a former DJ at the pirate station Radio Caroline, played out Flowers in the Rain by the move. Woke up one morning half asleep with all my blankets in a heap and yellow roses scattered all around. The time was still approaching for I couldn't stand it anymore. So Mary goes upon my eye to So the fight was over, right? 
rock and roll on the BBC airwaves? Well, not exactly. You're listening to the last moments, the last 45 minutes now of Radio Jackie. And uh, with me in the studio this afternoon, or should I say this evening, we've got uh, Kate Davis. Hello, Kate. Hello, Dave. It's been really great. It's not exactly easy to say goodbye. I did have something written down, but I don't think I'll bother. Just thanks to all the listeners who've made it possible, and to the staff. Okay, and of course Radio Jackie's really become a way of life, hasn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. So, no, goodness knows what we're going to do now. Don't know. Thanks very much. The time on Radio Jackie is now two minutes past seven. For the last 16 years, you've been listening to Radio Jackie. We hope you can listen again in the future. And that really is just about it from us. Even as I speak, we think the Department of Trade and Industry is actually at the medium wave location, taking our medium wave transmitter. And being as we're voluntarily closing down, it makes you think. That is it from Radio Jackie. There are hundreds of people. Well, there's got to be five, six hundred people around the studio complex at the moment. It's an amazing feeling, and unfortunately, it's all about to die. For the very final time, goodbye. 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 That was from the closing broadcast of land-based pirate station, Radio Jackie, in 1985. Although with the creation of BBC Radio 1 in 1967, the English government had relented and allowed some pop music on the airwaves, they were far from ready to relinquish control over broadcasting. Today, on Power Play, the mostly full story of the fight for free radio in the United Kingdom. So, you might be wondering, what happened? Well, let's pick up right where we left off. The carrot and stick of BBC Radio 1 and new laws against offshore broadcasting didn't blunt the activity of the pirates. There were strict regulations on BBC One, such as how much hit music the station could play, called needle time restrictions. These were supported by the government, which still didn't much like pop music, and by record companies, which thought that radio play hurt sales. Why would people buy the record if they could just hear it on the radio? These restrictions, paired with the fact that the government's solution was to literally create one popular music station for the entire country, left many dissatisfied. What followed was an escalating war between the Labour Party, which was running the government, and the pirates. New pirates showed up off the coast, and an increasing number of land-based pirate transmissions cropped up as well, such as Radio Jackie, which took to the air in 1969. The government responded by jamming their transmissions and escalating raids against illegal stations, a move that caused public outcry and protests to a degree that, leading up to the 1970 general election, the Conservative Party actually went as far as to make it a part of their platform to introduce commercial radio in the UK. And the politicization of the issue intensified things dramatically. As pirates began to actively endorse the Conservative Party, the Labour government further escalated raids and anti-pirate measures to a point which forced many stations into a temporary hiatus until after the election. When the Conservative Party won a surprise victory, pirate stations returned to the air, and were now hopeful that they could become legal and licensed. This didn't happen, though. Commercial radio was sent off to an exploratory committee, and lawmakers largely hoped to just forget about it. This may seem like a surprising outcome. The Conservative Party's free market wing had been enthusiastic about letting there be a market in radio and wresting it from state control. 
The problem was first, that the BBC still held a large amount of sway in government, and second, that the Free Radio Coalition had been an unusual mix of more right-wing, free-market types, and more left-wing, community-oriented types. It's no coincidence that the push for free radio came in the 60s, along with rock and roll and similar free-love rhetoric. You can hear both kinds of freedom wrapped together in this argument from a Radio Jackie broadcast. Why, when every other Western democracy can permit hundreds of radio stations, literally hundreds, can the same not happen in Britain? We believe that eventually radio listeners will have a free choice to listen to the stations they want to listen to, playing the music they want to listen to, talking about the issues they want to hear about, and giving the news and charity and local information about events and places they want to hear about. Eventually, though, the committee exploring commercial radio did get around to creating some commercial stations. In 1973, three years after the Conservatives took power, the first commercial radio began to take the air. There were only two at first, though, and they suffered from the same problems that BBC Radio One did. They were subject to needle time restrictions and faced the same dilemma of trying to please a hugely diverse audience. Capital Radio, one of the first two, would juxtapose Mozart and pop music. People were not satisfied. And so pirate stations persisted. Although Radio Caroline continued to broadcast off the coast, most of the focus was now on the new local land-based pirates. So you've mentioned these land-based pirates like Radio Jackie a few times. How exactly would that work, since they're not on a boat or anything? Early pirates were mostly radio enthusiasts who had taught themselves how to build a transmitter and met each other by browsing the airwaves to find other amateurs like themselves to talk to. They were pretty much the equivalent of early computer geeks playing around in their garage. Wow, that's very classy. <laughs> Although things were pretty janky for the first few years while they were broadcasting, uh, it wasn't illegal to record a radio show, so they would record shows to cassettes in their houses with relative ease. The trouble was the actual broadcasting. Yeah, I would imagine it's much harder to broadcast a show out to listeners than it is to just surf the waves talking to a couple individuals. Yeah, that was the main difficulty. They had these cassettes of recorded shows and music, but they needed a place they could broadcast where they would get a good signal out and not worry about being caught. Their solution? Trees. Trees? Trees. Okay, so they would just like hang the equipment in the trees or... Yeah, I mean, you know, you may be kidding and it sounds kind of silly, but yes, that is exactly what they did. Uh, the government would huh. drive around in vans trying to track down radio stations. So these early broadcasters would record their shows on the cassettes, drive out to a field somewhere, and hang their emitter in a tree for a few hours. At the end of their broadcast, or if the lookout spotted the cops coming, they would then, you know, either hurriedly load their equipment uh, into the cars and drive away, or would simply just stash it, you know, in the nearby foliage or wherever they could in the landscape before making their getaway. Alright, I do not know what I was expecting, but it was not that. <laughs> yeah, and to be fair, they weren't, you know, uh, a huge fan of that broadcasting method either. Uh, as technology evolved, so did their broadcast methods, until it became a lot more like traditional radio. Okay, so this part I am more familiar with. Cheaper and easier-to-use equipment became available as more and more pirates 
took to the air throughout the 1970s. Eventually, there were dozens of stations in different areas of the UK, many using new VHF and microwave broadcasting equipment to send out live shows via transmitters that could be installed anywhere on top of buildings and were difficult to trace back to the actual studios. Transmitters were still being removed, though, and investigators were busting studios as well when they could find them. This back and forth between pirates and inspectors continued and was mostly in good spirit through the 70s. The investigation team was actually so small that radio stations would memorize the faces of the inspectors, greeting them by name at raids, or leaving them personalized notes on their transmitters, saying things like, even though you're taking this down, we, we still love you. That's very cute. Even during this period, though, it wasn't always pleasant. During a raid in 79, one of the radio jackie operators was assaulted by an inspector. There were enough witnesses that when they brought the issue to court, the officer was found guilty of the assault. But he kept his job. At any rate... This game of cat and mouse meant that most stations were only able to broadcast a few hours a week. That is, until 1983, when a legal loophole was discovered. That's right. The broadcasters realized that the uh, previously mentioned and very exciting 1949 law, the Telegraphy Act, which the government was enforcing, actually didn't allow the police to confiscate their equipment. It said the authorities could, quote, examine and test end quote, the unauthorized technology they found, but those broadcasting didn't even have to identify themselves during the raid, much less forfeit their equipment. Again, Radio Jackie was at the forefront of asserting their rights. Hmm, law enforcement. In 1983, Radio Jackie began live 24-hour broadcasts. Shortly after beginning, they were raided, but they successfully argued that under the law, their equipment could not be confiscated without a court order. They won the argument, and when the police finished their inspection, Radio Jackie was back on the air just a few minutes later. Radio Jackie realized that they could become a full-fledged business. By being on the air 24-7, they made more than enough money that they could cover the costs of any equipment that the court ordered to be confiscated, and the time delay between equipment being discovered and the authorities being able to actually get a court order to remove it meant that they had plenty of time to get new equipment up and running. They were to enjoy nearly uninterrupted service from then until their closing broadcast in 1985. We teased that shutdown of Radio Jackie earlier. Let's take you listeners out of suspense. To understand how Jackie ended up shutting down just two years after becoming a 24-7 live station, Let's hear a bit more from their final broadcast. Also, we've got Les here at the moment. Hello, Les. Yes, hello, Dave. Hello, listeners. I think the other thing is a message to Radio Mercury. They've wagered this campaign to get us off the air, and okay, they've succeeded. But one of the reasons they did this was because they said we were stealing their listeners. I'm sure from speaking to people today, there is nobody who follows Radio Jackie who is ever going to tune into Radio Mercury. Radio Mercury was actually one of the commercial stations which the government had started rolling out in 1973. They still suffered from the same issues they opened with, and blamed pirate radio for supposedly stealing their audience and ad revenue. And although, as the Jackie hosts noted, the idea that they were stealing listeners was likely overblown, the ad revenue thing is kind of true. 
The same needle time restrictions, which record companies had pushed for in the 60s, were now hurting them. They couldn't get enough airtime for their new records, and they now realized that radio play drove sales instead of hurting them. Many companies began paying pirate radio stations under the table to play their music. If you've ever heard of the payola or pay-for-play scandals in the United States, this was the exact same thing. DJs accepting money to play records. Even BBC Radio 1 wasn't immune to this practice, but pirates could make more money from it because they didn't have the same needle time rules. In fact, stations would often have a paid record they played at the top of each hour and charged heavily for placement. This was called the, wait for it, power play record. But a uh, long story short, the commercial radio stations in the BBC had been you know, upset about the pirates since the 70s, and with the brazen behavior of stations like Jackie, they were able to finally get government action in 1984. It's worth noting that some of the stations growing during the early 80s were also markedly different from Jackie and its generation. A new cohort of stations like LWR and KISS FM, named after the American one, were playing black music to a growing audience. You know, before we mentioned that the pirates were a mix of the free market types and the free radio, free love folks, Radio Jackie were more of the free market commercial types, and other stations popped up to champion more of the community angle. As station or radio jived at some of their competitors, it's called pirate radio, not parrot radio. In the 70s, rock and roll was far less controversial than it had been previously, and by the 80s, it was even a bit old-timey for much of the younger generation. Pirate stations formed for London's Turkish, East Asian, and Greek communities, among others. Particularly prominent were Black-owned stations forming to play the music of Black communities, such as soul, reggae, and house, that would take the country and the world by storm in the coming years. Every Friday, Cammy's needs you. Come on down and be entertained by LWR's famed soul syndicate with master mixer Barry B, Ron Tom, and JJ. There's live PAs plus guests every week. It's three pals and you can join in the music and fun. Cammy's on a Friday. Come in, right in. Cammy's nightclub, Rosina Street, off Homerton High Street, Hackney East 9. LWR 92.5 FM. In addition to the BBC and the few commercial stations being upset about pirates, as we mentioned, the 80s were... Oh, how should I put this? Thatcher time? Can, can I say Thatcher time? Uh, <laughs> basically, um... The, can you? <laughs> yeah, actually, that's, that's a song, right? Uh, the new government under Margaret Thatcher, which took power in 1979, was enthusiastic about entrepreneurship and the free market but decidedly against legalizing pirate radio. Yeah, we really don't have time to get into this because, well, it's a lot. But the Thatcher government rarely had policies that were friendly to minorities, or anyone construed as outside polite society. It wasn't really a surprise when in 1984, the legal loopholes from the Wireless Telegraphy Act were closed. Even Radio Jackie was targeted. Radio Mercury was a legal station that happened to be in the same geographic area as Jackie, and they basically went to war. In 1985, Jackie was raided, and under the new laws, all of their equipment was taken. 
they decided to close down in the face of the new laws and the campaign against them, and gave the heartfelt final broadcast you've heard excerpts from today. But the fight went on, and the government took further steps to address the other pirates, like LWR and KISS. Again, their method was both the carrot and the stick. In a written answer to a question in the House of Commons today, the Home Secretary, Mr Leon Britton, said he was determined to reach practical decisions on the development of community radio as soon as possible. On the one hand, the government agreed to begin making community radio legal. Any stations that shut down would be welcome to apply. On the other hand, the police kept using the newly closed loopholes to raid and confiscate equipment. This combination of offering licenses to those who shut down and the new intensity of raids, such as the one on Jackie, led many stations to close. The following year, though, the government, just before it was supposed to announce the winners of the community radio licenses, cancelled the plan. Rumors circulated that the government had simply not been happy with the racial and ethnic diversity of the applicants, and the anti-Thatcher stance many of those applicants maintained. The Thatcher government was fine with the idea of community radio, but the actual communities the stations wanted to represent made them uneasy. Stations were understandably outraged, and protests sprang up. In one case, a pirate hijacked a frequency used by Capital Radio, though they were shut down after only a few hours. Most pirates went back to the air immediately, and with more and more stations using microwave technology to hide their studios, and the sheer number of stations popping up, the inspectors began to be overwhelmed. And the government's response? More funding. Parliament gave them additional funds to, in a blitz against the pirates, to hire private detectives to track radio operators back to their stations, and rent cranes to help them take down pirate aerials more efficiently. This wasn't enough, though. So what? Increased funding for the inspectors didn't solve the issue? Nope. Hmm. Odd. Yeah, the government had to try another strategy. John Butcher, the junior industry minister, says pirate radio operators have been beating up his inspectors. He wants the public to help bring the villains to justice. One investigator operating in Birmingham died of a heart attack as a result of an incident when he was dragged from his car, stripped and beaten unconscious. The authorities enlisted the public's aid in tracking down pirates, asserting that the pirates were a part of a violent anarchist plot. And we're not just throwing those words around lightly. The authorities quoted an anarchist booklet titled, Radio is My Bomb, which made its position pretty clear. The booklet said, quote, The police are wide open to attack when coming to get you. One easy way to hit back on tower blocks is to trap them in the lifts. The lookout signals up when they're in, and you throw the main power switches in the lift room. Then you take your gear down the stairs, beating up any of them you meet on the way, and make off. If you're going to attack them directly, make sure you're well-masked and tooled up, and have enough skill and numbers to get past them. Remember, they have the entire state apparatus backing them up. Any form of direct attack should therefore be anonymous, and never spoken of or boasted about later. Or before. Ha 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 ha. To be clear, that evil laughter is a part of the text. Like, they literally took the time to type out ha 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 with eight ha's on their typewriter. Yeah, that's that's a lot of ha's. Um, and if, if that's not a bit of a giveaway that this was a bit of a fringe manuscript, 
Here's another section, actually about our friends at Radio Jackie, under the bolded heading, The Jackie Conspiracy. <clears throat> Quote, Radio Jackie began way back in 1969, and gradually built into a 24-hour-per-day station, becoming Britain's biggest and only tolerated pirate. Broadcasting non-stop pop and advertising to all Southeast London, Jackie put out a popular community image with free ads for local events, etc., while stating often that they were more self-censoring than the BBC, and all other pirates should be blitzed. As for Peter Streams, co-owner, director, and secretary of Jackie, he's a man of some interest, since he single-handedly up the experiment in community radio, he stands firmly in the fascist extremist right wing of the Tory party. He's also a spokesman and writer for the Adam Smith Institute and director of the Center for Atlantic Education Economics, both of which are fronts for the CIA. <laughs> Quite a bastard. Wow. And again, Radio Jackie was viewed by many fellow pirates as a bit conservative, both in terms of their politics and their programming. But just like its section on beating up the police, the manuscript's description of Radio Jackie was kind of French, and what many saw as pretty nutty. And although there were some real incidents of violence against inspectors, those were lost in the discourse and public sentiment quickly turned against the authorities, when people realized just how contrived this anarchist plot story was. No major pirates had even heard of the manuscript, Radio Is My Bomb. With their war for public opinion lost, in 1988, the government returned to its favorite strategy once again. It was carrot and stick time. For the carrot, the government said it was finally going to allow community radio, and not back out this time. The stick was a set of new laws adding further penalties for pirates. Among other penalties, any convicted pirate would now be banned from any work relating to radio for five years. These new anti-pirate measures, and the requirement that stations close down to apply for the new community radio licenses, led many big stations, such as the influential KISS FM and LWR, to shut down and apply. And, to the surprise of many pirates, the government followed through on its word. In 1989, several stations were awarded licenses, including the black music station KISS FM. There were never going to be enough licenses for everyone, though. And those who didn't receive licenses came back as pirates. Things were different than before, though. Previously, stations like Radio Jackie had been pirates whose aim was a license. They wanted to broadcast legally. They didn't have a problem with the system of radio, they just wanted to be a part of it. They even followed most of the rules imposed on legal stations. And in the case of Radio Jackie, they actually offered to pay record companies royalties for playing their music, even though they were pirates. Now though, having made it nearly impossible for people involved with unlicensed radio to also work with legal stations, there formed a greater rift than had previously existed between licensed and unlicensed radio. Stations like KISS FM, which had become legal, found that their community radio license actually came with a mandate of making as much profit as possible. KISS now had investors, and it and its fellow community radio stations either changed the music they played and the DJs they hired to maximize profit for investors, or found their licenses given to others who would. Although KISS FM still exists today, 
Some former DJs assert that the real Kiss died in 1989, when the station became legal. Meanwhile, the pirates kept on playing, now no longer entertaining the same ambitions of legality that Jackie and others had aspired to. The government, exasperated with pirates having gone back to broadcasting, just went with the stick this time. In 1990, a new law made unlicensed broadcasting a criminal offense, risking a two-year prison sentence and unlimited fines. Additionally, providing any kind of material aid or resistance to pirate stations was now fully illegal. In response, a new wave of pirates arose outside the law, playing music like Jungle and Grime. And the history keeps going. Although many stations have since become legal, for the most part the government was all out of carrots by the 1990s. The number of raids on unlicensed broadcasters increased from 169 in 1990, which had been fairly typical of the years preceding it, increased from 169 to 475 the year following in 1991, to 1,438 in 2001. In response, pirates had to go to new extremes, hiding transmitters in ventilation shafts, putting transmitters on fortified roofs only accessible by rappelling down from above, or concreting their equipment into buildings. On the legal side of things, stations continued to gradually receive commercial licenses. Radio Jackie returned to the air legally in 1996, just over 10 years after they had closed down. Across southwest London and North Surrey, live from Tolworth Tower, this is 107.8 Radio Jackie. The dream of commercial radio came true, but although in 2004 licenses finally began being granted to stations as non-profit community radio, half of all the radio in the UK today is owned by just two corporations. So, where does that leave us? Well, a BBC documentary on the topic, which I'd certainly recommend, is facetiously named The Last Pirates, although, as the narrator acknowledges, there may well always be pirates. I mean, personally, I came across this story while doing some background reading after watching the movie Pirate Radio with Philip Seymour Hoffman, which frames the whole pirate radio thing as this very odd 60s rock and roll rebellion that, you know, happened and is over now. And... Honestly, this does feel like a story which should have started and ended in the 60s. Yeah, but like a lot of things, it happened very recently and is still happening today. Of course, now it's all about internet radio. Stations like Balami stay true to that underground music feel, playing genres like jazz, grime, techno. Other stations like Foundation FM, founded in 2018, feature the underground music scene but with a more direct mandate to, quote, showcase the hottest emerging talent in the underground music scene, led by a diverse group of women, LGBTQI plus persons, and talented creatives, with women at the forefront. Asked about pirate radio, Amy Bennett, one of the founders of Foundation FM, responded, quote, I think there's the same energy behind internet radio as there was with pirate radio, but Internet radio is that step between pirate and mainstream. You've got their freedom, but you're still legit. Listen to another co-founder of Foundation describe their motivation for starting the station. We knew that we wanted to do something different. That was the whole thing about Foundation. We just felt like radio was a bit stuck for us and we wanted to shake it up. And we thought about like what our communities would really need. Sound familiar? 
Again, those who feel like there isn't a space for them in traditional radio just simply have to make their own. And at least for now, the internet has provided a safe place for radio innovation. FM piracy in the UK, although still around, is uncommon enough that the government no longer actively harasses them. This is fragile freedom, though. The internet is still very much being poked and prodded by lawmakers who don't really understand it, and we likely haven't seen the last of laws like SOPA and PIPA, which were proposed in the United States to curtail online freedom. At any rate, things seem to have reached a kind of ceasefire at the moment, so let's enjoy it while it lasts. And if you'd like to know more about the history of pirate radio in the UK, I'd suggest picking up a copy of London's Pirate Pioneers by Stephen Hepditch. It includes more detail on the stories we discussed today and the histories of dozens of other stations that couldn't make it into today's episode. Hello, and thank you for listening. I'm Carbo, creator and editor of PowerPlay. Ross is my illustrious co-host. This episode was researched by myself and produced by Tamberly Ferguson. Thank you to Josh Sacco for Indispensability, Amanda Preston for her support starting the podcast, Sean Lewis for transcribing our episodes this season, and Heidi, whom I promised I'd get in the credits. The music you heard today was Theme 1 by George Martin, Flowers in the Rain by The Move, Hotshot by Scott Holmes, Bass by Parallel Park, Just Give It Time by Pierce Murphy, Counterattack by Parallel Park, Love Chances by Mikai Beats, and Past the Barbary by Ava Luna. Powerplay is presented by WDAV Classical Public Radio. If you like what you heard, you can find more information on this episode and other great programming at WDAV.org slash subscribe. Mm-hmm.